0: is a Handshake Agency podcast.
1: Hey, I'm Steve Bell. Welcome to the second episode of Rewind's Look Back 25 Years to the release of the debut album 2 playing by young Brisbane rock band Regurgitator. As always with these multi-part deep dives, we recommend that you start at the beginning, so if you haven't checked out episode 1 yet, you should probably get amongst that one first. To recap that episode, we tracked Regurgitator's formation and rapid ascent into the public consciousness and met some of the key players in the story, including the band's fiercely DIY manager Paul Curtis, young producer Lachlan McGuguld, Gould, who just knocked back the plum job of doing Powderfinger's live sound to push his studio credentials with Regurgitator, and also Michael Parisi, the Warner Music A&R rep, who just signed Regurgitator from Near Obscurity with the pivotal contract clause giving them full creative control. So by now we're in the early stages of 1996, with the band preparing to record their debut album. Things are going swimmingly in regurgitator realms. They've released two well-received EPs, and got plenty of airplay for songs like Couldn't Do It and Blubber Boy, both of which would be re-tackled on 2 playing. and their incendiary live show is going from strength to strength. The headlining shows are huge, they're getting great supports, And they're starting to become festival staples already. In the last 12 months, they've done all three alternative nations, an early version of the Falls Festival called Above the Falls, the first Homebake and the National Big Day Out Tour. They're killing it. They've already released the album's first single, FSO, which did well, despite the physical single hiding the 100-second song amidst 18 minutes of static. And they've recorded a second song, Kung Fu Sing, in Brisbane. So they have a single to drop shortly after the album session's to keep the crucial momentum moving forward. And the sessions themselves? Regurgitator drummer Martin Lee, despite his tender years already a veteran in band terms, has convinced everyone that it makes both creative and economic sense to record the album offshore in Southeast Asia and they have settled on Bangkok, the hectic capital city of beautiful Thailand. Regurgitator have never followed the road most travelled and have got this far resolutely doing their own thing, so why change now? Martin recalls it wasn't really hard to get everybody on board. Didn't have
2: to convince them that that they, as I said, they weren't really, it wasn't really their thing to think about those things. It was just like, Martin's got an idea, let's go, let's do it. But we all just went with each other's ideas, that there wasn't the conflict or the egos and the rubbish at that time. It was just like, let's do it. And obviously quan has got a worldly sense and Ben was sort of a bit of a rock and roll, punk rock hippie at the time, so it all fit. The record company couldn't do anything contractually. I think that they knew if they fuck with it that they were going fuck to fuck it in general, so they let us go. And plus, it wasn't that much money for them, you know, 20 grand or whatever it was. It was a fucking drop in the ocean. So they off we went, and um, it worked. I think Magoo, Magoo wanted to go overseas, but I think he was worried about the equipment that he was going to be having to deal with, and uh, but we ended up in this Thai Superstars fucking studio and, yeah, it wasn't maintained, but it was certainly of a decent standard for the band that we were at the time, so. Was it a
1: cost thing mainly or more for the adventure?
2: Both. Both. I always knew that sort of, once again, we weren't the sort of band that needed, needed a five-star studio, you know. We just needed the basics and... Um, and I knew that, so I thought, why waste all the money in fucking Los Angeles or Melbourne or whatever it is? Let's go find somewhere, and plus we can hang out, have a holiday, get a bit of adventure. And plus we always had an outward look, you know what I mean? Just like, let's try something different. So that was that.
1: Martin mentioned the Thai Superstars studio where they ended up recording two playing, but at the outset they didn't know anything about recording studios in Thailand, which in the days before the internet, necessitated a reconnaissance trip to Southeast Asia to scope out the perfect place to lay down their debut. His regurgitated basis, Ben, and the manager, Paul.
3: We had a tour booked in Europe, um, and I had never left the country. I think I was 24. I'd never left Australia. And then I remember flying into Hong Kong with Martin um. And just being totally blown away by the concrete jungle of Hong Kong and just going, wow, like this is the world. This is wild. You know, at the time there were still Chinese junks with red sails sailing around Hong Kong harbour and we're staying at Simsat Choi at Charlie Chan's kind of backpacker kind of place. Going to these kind of wild markets and noodle bars and I just felt like I was in fucking Blade Runner. I may as well have been, you know. That's and Martin the was used to a, be
1: in the middle of the city too. Yeah, so yeah, he used to like fly
3: it. between the skyscrapers yeah. like you'd fly you see people's undies on the line as you fly in and Did did I meet you in Hong Kong on the way to Europe? Yeah and maybe. You, and Martin came in from Bangkok? Is that right?
0: When yeah, maybe there? on the
3: way out but I remember being in Hong Kong, just being really blown away. And Martin's a pretty interesting dude. He used to sleep talk and sleep walk and do stuff. And I remember being at Charlie Chan's with him and he was like, the dragons, the dragons are getting me. in he'd try and jump out. The, I remember grabbing him from jumping out of a skyscraper building because he, he thought dragons were trying to chase him in his sleep. And I was like, who am I hanging out with? This guy's like pretty wild. And then we get to Bangkok and I think we met up with Nick Lornay, who did Midnight All Records and stuff. And we went to some like full on bizarre like Martin took us to like the most hardcore places straight up. And my little shacks in the jungle mentality of being in Brisbane and going to Bangkok, going to these hardcore red light area clubs where people are like having sex on stage. People this elevator... this um motorbike was lowered from the roof and these couples are just like having sex on it in the middle of the club. There's like prostitutes everywhere. And it was a little bit too much for me to be honest. Um, but I remember just going, holy shit, like this is a crazy world out there. And then we went around to all these little studios, went to some really bad studios, like tiny dive kind of studios and i think of we'd look for a few days because our purpose of going to thailand was to find a studio on the way to europe we're like we'll do a reconnaissance mission we'll go to thailand we'll try and find a cool studio we'd look for days couldn't find anything we were just like this is fruitless there's nothing here and then we got some lead from someone i don't know who it was I thought it was a bar girl or whatever, and she was like, oh, you should check out this studio that's owned by this guy called Carabao, And it was a bit out of Bangkok, and um went, cool, we go and check it out. And it was, like, in the middle of this swamp in this ghetto. So all around it was ghettos in a swamp of people living on the water and these little shanty shacks that were just propped up above the swamp. And there's kind of, like, shit everywhere and rubbish and... The actual studio was in this compound owned by this guy. He was kind of like a left-wing kind of uh, singer-songwriter who had kind of pretty left-wing kind of lyrics, but he kind of sounded a bit like Santana. And he was also kind of like the leader of a bikey gang or something. There was all these Harley Davidsons. And he had a cool kind of home studio that he'd lease out and he'd rent it to people. We went in... um, and saw the studio and went, oh, this is this a is pretty good studio. You know, had two-inch tape machine, 24-channel desk. Yeah, it had a cool drum kit and the amps and everything. And it was a pretty nice studio, big control room with comfy couches and a big studio, and it was probably, you know, a tenth of the price of an Australian studio. I went, this
1: is great. Let's use this. Magoo remembers his first impressions of the studio were positive
4: and that they pretty much decided it was their place on the spot. We did a bit of a... a reconnaissance, well, reconnaissance probably isn't the right word. We did a bit of an an investigatory trip to Thailand to try and choose a studio. Um, And we had three days put aside and it took us all but, you know, six hours to find one. We went to a few tiny little studios that were fairly high-end studios in the middle of, in the center of Bangkok. And it was like, oh... Yeah, I don't, I don't really know if that's going to work. And then it was uh, Warner, Thailand took us out to center stage studios, which was on the outskirts. And as soon as we walked in, we we're like, oh, yeah, this is the place. Um, and I guess I kind of scoured, looked around to see what equipment was there. We were probably only there for an hour. Um, but it had an AMEC console, which was the same console that I mixed Kung Fu Sing on. Um same console, I, th- I think new was made on an AMEC console. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was. Uh, so, it, anyway, it was a console that existed at Red Zeds. Very similar anyway. So, I kind of knew I was familiar with the console. It had good outboard gear. It had a fancy uh, Triton keyboard, which um, uh, was co- kind of new at the time, quite expensive and, you know, I sort of thought, oh, yeah, there'll be enough stuff for us to get all of that happening. Uh, all of the, you know, what we wanted to achieve there happening. So, I guess it was more making sure we had everything there. I don't know if I was taking notes or anything like that. It just seemed like a pretty good studio. And we left and that, that the decision was made. That's where we were going to make it. And then I guess it was up to Paul and the label to sort of sort out booking the studio. Like I said, it would have been a... A quick sign of kind of hour, browse around. It's like, oh, yeah, they've got drum kits and guitar amps and kind of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, taking note of what was there and what we would need to bring, which was really, I think they just brought guitars and drumsticks. <laughs> um, I think Martin, Martin might have brought his sampler. I'm, I'm pretty sure I remember him having some archaic PV sampler or something that he brought with him. Um, but that was about it. Martin for his part was totally happy with the setup they eventually
1: discovered.
2: Yeah, man. I think we were on our way to Europe or something. So we thought we'd go to Thailand. I think it was one of those trips. My memory's a bit hazy. Mm-hmm. Ben and I went a couple of times and then one time we met with Goo there, Kwan didn't go. We looked at all the studios, found one, then we went to one of the islands in the south, parted it up, and um yeah. But the but the Warner's Warner's Thailand really sort of helped helped us because the artist studio that we recorded at he was signed to Warner Music Thailand and he was like this superstar country musician and um, unlimited money unlimited whatever and he was just they were all pot smoking hippies so it was it was good <laughs> it was really good we lived down the road in this this building and he had this complex down the street, and he's he's a part of part of a motorcycle crew too. So there was all these expensive Harleys and fucking Ferrari, and but they're all like hippies. It was, it, it was a really surreal environment, and, and I was smoking a lot of hooch at the time with Ben, and and damn, um, yeah, it was it was just interesting. It was just really interesting, and I think that's why the record that's why it's an interesting record, man.
1: The band's front Man Quan while aware from quite early on that he wasn't interested in long stints on the road touring overseas, was quite open to the idea of recording to playing in
5: Thailand. I think uh, I was always a little hesitant to, to tour a lot overseas and I believe that the other guys felt pretty annoyed about that at the time because they were very career orientated, like I said. And I was also, I was very excited about it all. I was excited to have this attention, excited to have this success on our doorstep, like on the threshold of it. Um, But of course I was in, I was beginning this relationship with Janet and I was really, we were really into each other. And I remember the first tour we did in Europe was six or seven weeks solid. And after that, I just was like, I don't want to tour any longer than three weeks. I'm sorry. So that really kind of killed any opportunity for the band to move overseas and try and go for it in America. And recording overseas was fine because it was usually only a three-week to four-week period anyway. And so I agreed with that and I was excited to do it as long as it was something a little bit more interesting. Uh, My father had always instilled this idea that, you know, as an Australian, we're kind of dictated to by the European community in America constantly for, you know, um, for popular popular culture and... um, uh the idea of uh, even politics and, and all those sort of things but he he was he was like well we're actually in an asia region we should consider asia as our neighbors our closest neighbors and you know had a kind of paul keating kind of um sense of of where we were in the world and so i was really excited about the idea of going and recording in asia so i was pretty happy about that and those guys had done the scouting or interested in the area for various reasons. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was, I was genuinely excited about going to record there.
1: So we've picked a studio in the outer suburbs of Bangkok, one which was named Centre Stage Studios despite existing in a swamp. The label signed off on it and we're good to go. But as the team is about to discover, dropping in and checking out a place for an hour or two is a lot different to living and working there for a three-week stretch. Here's Ben to explain.
3: When well, we actually went over to do the session... And we rocked up there with um, Magoo and the band. And we stayed... Okay, so there was a compound where the studio was and there was a dirt road that it went straight through this swamp and it went through this ghetto where all these, like, super poor people are living on the river. And we walked down this really long dirt road to this bizarre concrete tower that hadn't been painted and they said, you can just stay in here... And somehow the studio people organized us a room to stay. And it was kind of a pretty basic concrete rooms with um, mattresses with the plastic on it. They're like, don't take off the plastic. Just sleep on the mattress on the floor in the middle is concrete room with no furniture on the plastic in this weird room in Thailand. Like, it was pretty trippy. You know, it's just raw concrete. And we went down the first day. We set up. Oh, yeah, we're tired. You know, we just travelled, come into this bizarre place, sat up, dropped off all our gear, you know, sort of setting up the drums. Maybe we're trying to sort of getting a drum sound the first day. And I remember we all walked back to the concrete skyscraper in the middle of the swamp together, and, like, there was always some bizarre shit would happen. Like, there was all these wild street dogs, and we, as a group, there's, you know, me, Martin, Quan, Magoo – walking down the street and all these street dogs, it was a gang of about 20 of them, followed us. And then they surrounded us and started barking like they were going to, like, rip us apart. And I was just like, yell yeah, at him. Because I remember that because I had a, this, my dad had a house down, uh, a property we used to go to as kids and the neighbour had this ferocious dog who would charge you. And the, the only way to stop it is just to, like, rawr, like, scream at it. And I was just like, scream at him. And I went. I did my biggest heavy metal kind of scream and then the dog sort of got a bit shocked and somehow we got through and so from then on we'd always, we had our own kind of clubs, especially if you're walking that road, you'd have to carry a stick or a club and because it was these reeds growing on the side of the road in the swamp and it's a wet... Kind of dirt road raised above a swamp, and you could hear crocodiles. Like there's croc, they were like, "Yeah, there's crocodiles in there. Watch out for the crocodiles!" You know, so you'd be walking down this dirt road, and you'd you'd see it. You'd see or hear this crocodile go down, and then there was all these kind of shrines where the locals would put food and um, uh, um, gifts to Buddha and stuff with little candles. So it's quite pretty. But then you know, there's crocodiles and wild packs of dogs. And I remember walking back with Quan one night. It was just me and him pretty late at night. We're on the road, <laughs> you know, with our sticks. And I remember looking up at the streetlight. And I go, what, what the hell is that? And there was this thing flying around the streetlight. It looked like a big bird. Like, why is a bird flying around the streetlight in the middle of the night? And then it swooped down at us. And we we're like, whoa, fuck. And we could see it. It was this moth. That was about, you know, two feet in wide. It's giant moth. Like South Asian moth. That was, you know, attracted to the light. But it was kind of swooped us. I remember. You like- know, it was pretty trippy. Like it felt it felt it had you on edge. It felt a bit scary with the bikies and the and the dogs and the crocodile and the giant moths. <laughs>
1: I and remember when it you, was just
3: it felt like, especially first first experience overseas, it kind of felt pretty weird. I, I remember when you came back, and that was one of the first things you told me about was the moth. The moth was the like, and the crocodiles, and the crocodiles, and the dogs. The dogs are pretty because they were just everywhere, and they're really mangy. Like they look like they all had rabies. <laughs> but you know, I mean, the locals who lived on the river would just live in cardboard boxes on little platforms over the river and you walk down there to go to the shops to get some food and they were the most lovely people. They were so they would always smile and offer you a beer or one guy had a guitar and you'd like have to sit down and have a play and have a jam with him and drink beer. And I just remember going, Wow, you know, compared to Australia, you've got these people living in abject poverty. With nothing but they're this most joyful, happy people. And I went, What's wrong with Australia? Because in Australia we got beautiful houses, we got lots of money and you guys my my friends and family from Australia aren't as happy as these guys. I remember that really tripping me out, actually. Yeah, sorry. No, no, which in a way again is like as you're talking, I'm thinking about the prevalence of the fact that you're recording in this kind of location and how that just influences you i mean and certainly there's songs Mm. on the album even that have that sense of responding to that kind of scenario and uh, and even thinking about it afterwards that also feels like it leads you to kind of question the whole nature of like the commercial music industry as well like Mm. from the same perspective like um
6: just wealth yeah you know and how people live
3: because a lot of bands were you know. Who were on labels like us were going to LA. They were spending three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars on a record, and we just thought that was just insane. I mean, you listen to our records; they don't sound as good as their records. But we only spent twenty grand on ours. We spent 40. like <laughs> we spent on two playing both. Okay,
1: yeah, we yeah. spent a lot less though. <laughs> Magoo also recalls being pretty blown away by the scenario he and the Gurg found themselves in.
4: Well, yeah, it was it was amazing. It was like two worlds. Um, there, inside behind these three meter concrete walls, was three recording studios that were fairly well decked out. Um, the recording studio actually sounded really good. It was designed by some acoustic U.S. based acoustician that's had some sort of reputation. I, I can't verify who it was. Um, but the control room sounded really good. The recording space sounded really good. Um, and there there's also two other studios there. So this guy, Carabao, that owned the studio, had a pretty good setup. Um, had outside areas to sit and hang. Um, but then as soon as you walked outside of the complex, it was a complex. It wasn't just, you know, a, a house or a, a warehouse or something. It was this uh, purpose-built complex soon as you walked outside, it was the slums. There was people living in houses made of found corrugated iron. So, it was, you know, rusty, um, using found bits of wood to, to, uh, you know, construct these homes. Homes, loosely, like really, they'd be the size of a garden shed. And there would have been families living in them. There was chickens, wild chickens running around. There was wild dogs everywhere. Uh, But there was also, Carabao had his own saloon bar outside. I'm sure Ben and Paul spoke about it. But it was made in a similar kind of style. It was like a little shack. But I remember there was actually a post out the front, which you would have used to tie up your horse had you had one. Generally, outside of this saloon bar, you would find a couple of Harleys, um, like the classic 70s ones with the big ape hanger handlebars out the front. And they'd just be hanging there having a few drinks and, you know, there'd be anywhere between three or ten Harleys there. So, it was like his little hang spot out out sort of side. Um, we were staying in this newly constructed hotel up the road that I don't think had running water or beds. I think there were mattresses on the floor. It was fairly strange, but we would shower back at the studio, uh, which I remember the drains blocked up. I think they weren't used to having so many people showering there every day. Um, but we were fed there, fed at the studios, which that sort of had its, um, Uh, repercussions on Ben and myself. Um, What else? At five o'clock every day, there were these, there was a PA like outside, everywhere. It was like just a cultural thing that uh, I don't think we were used to that would play Buddhist prayers at five o'clock every day. So just piped out of these public address systems, which was just, which you could hear inside the compound, which was just kind of, Yeah, it just added to the otherworldly kind of character of the place. So, yeah, there was sort of like these these two worlds. There was the world that felt like a normal kind of studio that we were existing mainly in, but then you walked outside and it was just something completely new, very foreign to my young white bread Australian eyes. Uh, And, you know, it was fantastic. I, I loved it. Yeah, well, Martin had obviously spent a long time there. So, it probably wasn't new to him, which, of course, the whole idea was kind of Martin's impetus to sort of try and uh, record an album in Thailand. Uh, but yeah, certainly to, to me, it was uh, a great adventure. You know, I'd been there once before, was in Bangkok for three days. Um, fortunately, there was some sort of strike at the airports and- There was no planes out of Bangkok to Brisbane for two weeks. Ben, Martin and I all went to Koh Samui for 10 days, I think. Beautiful. Uh, So that was pretty nice. Uh, But that was my experience of Thailand before the album. And really the album, we did get off the plane, go to the studio, make the album, go back to the airport and go home. It's not like we did any touring of Bangkok while we were there. But we did walk around a bit. There was, you know, we had to go to the 7-Eleven to get some food every now and then. But, yeah, it was a very uh, amazing experience.
1: Changed my life. Ben also remembers of life at Centre Stage Studios that there were also some local people and their customs that you had to become acclimatised to.
3: You know, every morning, this really tough uh, dwarf guy would come into the studio and he was covered in scars And he looked like just the most gnarly little dude, little moustache. And he would always come in with big bags of weed. And he was like, oh, you want to buy my weed today? You want to buy my weed today? And I think I bought a bag on the first day. And the weed it was like a massive bag of weed. And I bought it. And we couldn't smoke at all. Like, I would just smoke a little bit at a time. And he would come in every day. You want some more? You want some more? I was like, sorry, man, I don't want any more. And there's all these like cagey bikey dudes hanging out there. And they all spoke Thai. None of them spoke English. So I remember sitting around with those guys playing music and uh I remember them kinda of like laughing at us. Like look at these like at these these Westerners are just
1: like, you know,
3: jerks, rich jerks or whatever. I don't know what they were thinking.
1: And back in Australia, the band's Warner A and R rep Michael Parisi who, as he explains, would fly to Thailand and drop in on the sessions toward the end, was also super excited about the arrangement.
0: I thought, fantastic, free holiday for me too. <laughs> no, no, I, I thought it was a brilliant idea. I thought, why not? I mean, um, I think it was Martin Lee's idea to do, to do it over there because uh, Martin had a connection over there. Um, and I, I went over there for the, for the last few days of mixing, um, you know, literally in the middle of you know, the Bangkok suburbs, in this state-of-the-art studio, which was owned by, I think, I think the artist's name was Caribou or Carabao, and he was like Thailand's Springsteen. And so this studio was unbelievable, you know. Um, and the thing they made it in, you know inside two weeks for 25 grand was, was unbelievable at the time, keeping in mind that flights, the comm, and uh, the whole thing cost $25,000. It was unbelievable. Yeah, and I, I just remember um, going to the studio and hearing the record for the first time, and just being so excited because it was just nothing like it, you know. And 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 the story, you know, we, we you know the story of making a record in Bangkok in itself was you know a great angle, you know. We shot we shot a couple of videos there. We shot country singer. I remember that. Um, I remember that shoot as well. It was like thirty eight degrees that day, um, but that was a fun time. Bangkok was it was kind of um, what's the word? It was kind of ins- inspirational, really. Because the record, the record, you know, sounded like the streets of Bangkok. It had, had, a, had an impact on them, for sure.
1: But sometimes when things seem too good to be true, your suspicions are justified. Carabao's studio might have looked world-class on the surface, but as Magoo explains, the star's relatively loose recording habits, coupled with a disturbing lack of maintenance, meant that the console needed some serious running repairs.
4: Well, yeah, it certainly... Uh um yeah it looked looks good on paper and when you walk through it in an hour when you're there it sort of looked great um but the studio was great like it we we got really good sounds in there the the rooms acoustically were good um the the only troubles with the studio was the maintenance um so there was i believe no one in thailand that was uh uh capable of fixing high-end audio equipment, let alone a large format console. Um, So, whoever designed and fitted out the studio did it and then left, and that was it. And being uh, Thailand, where uh, uh, I don't even know if, you know, like I know marijuana is not legal, uh, but it was smoked liberally in the control room. There was no kind of... Traditionally in a recording studio, you don't smoke in the, in the control room because the smoke uh, particles float around the air and little particles go down and fall into the little switches and stuff that are in the console. Um, but Carabao, I think he had a 10 or 15-piece band. Um, and part of the studio... As I said, there was cooks that cooked for us every day. We also had our own little drug runner, who he would go off and get us whatever we we, we liked. Which you know, Ben and I, uh, you know, uh, partook in a little uh, bit of marijuana that he he caught for us. I'm assuming you're going to leave in the edit whatever uh, will not legally uh, put us in jail. Um, but anyway, this uh, we 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 had. Uh, And there was no problem we could smoke that in the control room. But obviously, many people had smoked it in the control room before us. So, what that means is the switches in the console get sticky. Um, So, if you want to push in an equalizer, you push in EQ in and the switch doesn't engage. And you're like, oh, what goes on? But if you press and hold the switch, it engages. Uh, And I can remember approaching, there was an assistant there who had very limited English and I, I kind of said to him, uh, you know, Switch, no work, no work. And he goes, ah, I, I have fix. And he he comes to me with a uh, a box of toothpicks. And he's like, you know, use, you, you put toothpick in Switch, it work. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, which, which is fine. So, as we're recording, it's actually not too bad. Um, there's problematic switches you just jam a toothpick in there and it worked Um, uh, the consoles have this part at the top of each channel called the bus section which is a way that you can route audio through the console Um, which when you're recording you might use a little bit um, but not too often it wasn't too bad but by the time it gets to mixing you end up using the the bus section quite a lot Um, and you know I just got sick of pulling toothpicks in and out, so I just left the toothpicks in. And I can remember by the time I finished mixing, there was just toothpicks all over the console in that it was quite uh, treacherous to navigate the console because you'd end up getting jabbed by a toothpick uh, trying to push a button in to see if it worked or do I just shove a toothpick in it. So, like, really, the studio was quite good. It just, maybe for mixing, um, uh, there was that little... uh, Part that, you know, it didn't really slow me down. It just maybe uh, connected the inside world to the outside a little bit. You know, it felt like it was like one of the shanty towns outside that was being held up with little bits of found wood. The console was also being kept together with little bits of wood.
1: Quam was also busy adapting to this strange new place he'd found himself in while following his artistic dream.
5: I was actually really, really um, amazed by it. I mean, it was genuinely out there, the whole situation. When we arrived, the hotel wasn't finished. There was no sheets on the beds. There was, I don't think, any hot water, no towels, or maybe one towel, I think, per room. No, no, like, yeah, no bed linen at all. Uh, I remember having to take, I didn't shower there. I showered at the studio. So I would wear my clothes to bed and then I would, go to the studio, shower, wash my clothes in the shower, hang them up to dry, change my other pair of clothes and then go to work like very early in the morning and finish late at night and walk back through the swamp to the hotel room and go to bed. And it was like a very, very rigorous <laughs> three weeks of that routine pretty much daily. And the, one, the other thing I remember about it was just this incredible concentration of wealth in this ghetto area like you would walk through i mean occasionally go for walks out um through the actual area and this i just remember the sewer the open sewers full of black water and the kids playing with little um bugs tied to strings and you know just abject poverty and then the studio compound being like this kind of uh, uh like a castle filled with all this incredible gear, which was falling apart on its, you know, there was like toothpicks holding the um, the buttons down on the, but relative to the outside, it was a really quite an amazing um, setup that these guys had, had made. But I mean, we're talking about the Beatles of Thailand They'd sold like 50 million records or something. And they would get around on uh, Carabao and his gang would get around on these Harley Davidson's, like 20 of them riding like a swarm around the place. And every now and again, you'd hear them come into the compound. Um, so yeah, it was a fascinating setup and I remember the, the food as well just being incredible because the the in-house cook would just cook like really crazy hot Thai food and the other guys refused to have it that hot and I think every one of them got sick except for Martin and I because we'd have it super, super hot, but I seem to remember Magoo and Ben getting like close to dysentery type. <laughs> They're having quite quite bad diarrhea at points there, two or three days of it at least. Travelling in far-flung
1: foreign places, sickness is always a possibility. And as Quan just explained, both Ben and Magoo copped the wrong end of the stick in that regard. Here's Ben's memory of the not-so-great bit of the sessions.
3: Also outside the studio in the courtyard in the compound, next to the Harleys, was a little kitchen. And this really lovely older Thai lady um, kind of lived there. And she was the in-house cook. And she cooked us, like, the most – it was amazing food – Beautiful Thai food, but, oh, my God, it was really spicy and really hot. And um, I think about seven days into the recording, Mugu just got, like, wiped out with some bug, like a 48-hour flu thing, and he was out and we just couldn't record for a couple days. And then I think he was going in trying to record, like, uh, just throwing up in a bucket, just really sick. And then I got it. And I remember, you know, lying in the concrete hotel room. It's raw concrete on the plastic mattress. No sheets, no pillow. Reading um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Like super just tropical sickness, like really bad. Just vomiting and not eating anything for two days. Reading that book, just tripping out from being so sick and dragging yourself to the studio and back. But I think because maybe Martin and Quan didn't, didn't get it, maybe because of their diet or their, their Asian
1: heritage or, yeah, they didn't cop the, cop the gnarly one. Magoo, for his part, believes that the language barrier played a role in he and Ben falling sick.
4: We basically had lunch and dinner uh, prepared for us by the, the cooks that were part of the, the package deal. Um and at the time ben and i were both vegetarians um and you know in a third world country it did feel kind of strange to go you know no beef no meat and they didn't understand they couldn't speak a word of english so we'd sort of go no no beef no meat and we'd we'd uh we'd get a a beef curry so we kind of like went well okay we've we've got a we're going to have to eat meat so we you know ate meat for the first time but then the other part that came along with it was chili um you know the ties like their food very very spicy and we kept sort of you know less spice less spice and even when they had less spice it was still really hot um and i think my poor white little western body could only take it for so long and around i reckon it was uh you know it was over a week into it i think ben went down for one day he just couldn't get out of bed. Could only make it to the toilet to to then go back to bed. So, and that was probably around the time that Quan was writing "Music Is Sport," um, and I remember Quan had built up the the music on the Korg Triton that lived in the studio, uh, but he didn't have the words. And um, the day that I went down, which was the following Ben, I'll be the next day. I remember I had already put the music onto the tape machine, and Quan needed to write the words. And if you look at the words in Music and Sport, there's a lot of words. I remember him writing out like three pages of words. Um, and I had to I set up the tape machine on a loop so that it would just play to a certain point and then go back and just play again. And I can just remember being passed out on the floor in the studio. <laughs> making sure the loop was right and that Quan had everything he needed to write the words and it just kept playing over and over again. And I was, yeah, past that on the studio and just making kept making trips to the toilet. And the toilet was outside the studio and it kept going past the cooks and they kept giggling and laughing because it'd be like 20 minutes between trips and I'd have a rolled up magazine or something with me. Um, yeah, so, you know, I don't know if you call that problematic. Um but yeah, there was, there was times when, um, because there was a little bit of writing in the studio going, there was times when they needed time to write and write lyrics is usually the part that's left over. Um, but Music Is Sport is kind of the only one I can remember like that, because pop porn was already done, I, I believe. Um, there was a few songs
1: written over there though. From memory, yeah. So by now the album is really starting to take shape. FSO and Kung Fu Sing had been recorded in Brisbane prior to the Thai trip, plus the track list would include a reggae music version of Couldn't Do It from the first EP, retitled as Couldn't Do It, Happy Shopper Mix, as well as Blubber Boy from the second EP, New, on the album known as Blubber Boy Riding the Wave of Fashion Mix. Now, using songs from early EPs on a debut album is quite normal, and while these songs are often re-recorded for sonic consistency – the band doesn't usually completely change the vibe of them, but as we've been at pains to point out, Regurgitator pretty much write their own rules. Quan remembers pretty much just going with the flow.
5: I know we wrote a lot in those little rooms. I remember writing all of the lyrics for, well, most of the like music is sport and all those kind of hip-hop ones were written in a room as the thing was going down. So I literally wrote them in a day, some of them, um... There was a couple of songs that were from the EP, obviously, Blubber Boy and maybe something else I can't recall. Maybe Couldn't Do It Was Done. So we were re-recording a few old ideas and then some were just fresh. Um, I do recall the room and the DW drums that were set up and uh, it just felt like a really good space to kind of just work at a good pace and not get too, um, too fussy about things because... It did have a raw feel about it. There was kind of like, there was good gear in there, but it was also a little bit flawed and you couldn't do certain things. I mean, now it's just so much different, you know, with all the new modern gear and the DAWs that just do whatever you want, essentially. And this got that you're kind of paralyzed by choice. We didn't really have that there. Um, it was tape, I believe. So it was a different again to Unit, which was ADAT. But it, it did feel like a real studio and it was, and it was, um, uh, there was a sense that we could just have fun with it, definitely.
1: All four of you, including Magoo, were pr- relatively inexperienced compared to now. For instance, like you're all sort of learning your trade still as well.
5: Yeah, and I mean, I can cons- I still consider myself that way as well. I don't think I'll ever be what I, what some people would call a, a professional musician. I mean, I made a, I made a trade out of it, and I'm you know, s- successful in that sense of, of being able to maintain a career for this long, just doing what I like to do. But we always came from, I think we all came from a punk background, so there was always this DIY thing. Um, Martin was very smart in the sense that he instilled this idea of, of getting the record company's money and putting it into gear for ourselves and putting it into our own studios rather than just spending it on studio time, which is what we did for the next record. Um, I think two playing he, he probably wanted to do that or had that idea to do something like that, but, but I think just getting the record company to agree to allow us to do it in Thailand rather than in Australia or somewhere like America or England, which would have been far more normal, um, that was something that we, we managed to push over the line, which was great. Ben remembers the songs for the album coming together pretty effortlessly.
3: I don't remember it feeling like pressure. I remember Feeling pretty good. I remember feeling pretty good at that time. I remember Michael Preecy coming to visit saying, hey, I've got you to support for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So we just felt like, well, we're really making it, guys. <laughs> it's just a bit, it was a bit funny. Like, I remember that being, being pretty great. Like, it was all very exciting, actually. Before the first EPs, we kind of had written a bunch of stuff. So a lot of stuff that we wrote landed on the first two EPs and then we didn't have a lot of material. But, you know, I remember sitting outside in the, in the car park at the Roxy in Quan's mum's little old 60s Alfa Romeo and her little tape deck and we'd always listen to the BC Boys, the Cypress Hill and Kwan played a demo of Kung Fu Sing on it. And I was just like, wow, dude, that sounds wicked. So I, know, I remember we had that. I remember we had FSO, so we had Kung Fu Sing and FSO already recorded. So we felt, I think we weren't so stressed because we are like, okay, we've got two cool songs. These feel pretty cool. We could probably put Blubber Boy on there. Yeah, that's right. There's a few that came. But you did new recordings of that, didn't you? Yeah, we did a new version of that for the record. But then, yeah, we also had some raps like that G7 Electro Boogie. Kwan had written that rap. So I think we had that stuff. So we we're like, okay, we've got some cool content. Let's just go and muck around. And then in the mucking around, we came up with um, uh, "Music Is Sport," "Pop Porn," uh, uh, "Sucked a Lot of Cock to Get Where I Am," and all those kind of songs.
2: Yeah.
1: Martin remembers the session having a very laid back and collaborative feel.
2: Quite and Bim were and those sort of—they were writing good songs and. And for the direction and the sounds and everything. No one, no one was set in their ways, if you know what I mean. No one had become a so-called rock and roll star. No one, ideas were flowing. People were open to ideas. People, people were, you know what I mean? There was, just, there was just a creative vibe going on, so it worked. Now, I don't remember any fights. I think any of that sort of, maybe there were disagreements, but nothing. I remember a lot of laughter, a lot of fun. That's about, much like a member of that one. We were smoking a lot of hooch. Uh, what else? Uh, song wise. It just sort of, like I was telling Magoo the other day about unit, you know, it just sort of fell into place man. It, it, it's really strange that there was no like, we need a song like this, we need a song like that, or what's this one? It just sort of fell into place. <laughs> now, now I look back in hindsight. So.
1: From a production perspective, Magoo remembers taking things on a song-by-song basis rather than approaching the album with any preconceived aesthetic or design.
4: I think we were just extending on what we'd already been experimenting with on the first two EPs, um, which was really... I'm just trying to think if we ever really discussed the whole premise of the band of Regurgitator being, you know, this source of regurgitating various genres um, and perhaps you know there was always messing with the lyrics of those genres, but spitting it back out in a new way. So there was definitely that sort of mandate to keep the genres fixed. you know, like "I sucked a lot of cock" is a Beatles type song and my approach was to try and make it sound as beatlesy as I could. Which you know it was—it's not really that Beatlesy sounding, but um, it, it was my estimation at the time. Um, you know, so it was really just approaching each song as a separate entity. As a, 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 it could be a completely different band, which was, I think, how we approached, how I approached every regurgitated recording that I was involved in was, um, don't feel like you need to stick to some sort of genre of alternative guitar rock or hip hop Um, you know just if it's a hip hop song you make it sound like hip hop don't make it sound like regurgitator doing hip hop which I guess is what you get uh, but don't necessarily go oh well you're a rock band we've got to put guitars in it because it's you know you don't need to do that if it's a hip hop song do what's called for and they'll work out the live thing later so that we've we always sort of seemed to have that approach. So I, I think we were just, it was just an extension of what we were, had already tried. You built up an excellent platform leading into the debut album. Like, they'd got so much
1: traction with those early EPs and the live show was going from strength to strength. It must have been a pretty exciting time to be involved in.
4: Yeah, it was. There was a bit of a buzz uh, around the band and, um, it, you know, I think it probably took us all a bit by surprise. Um and but but like I I I didn't really myself I didn't really sense a whole heap of pressure I, I guess it was there, but perhaps I was just so young and naive of the machinations of the major label world that I, I just jumped into it and just tried to do the best that I could. I, I don't particularly, you know, f- feel like. uh I was in, incredibly pressured. We, we felt quite freeing, I, I, free. I, I feel like perhaps maybe the, the record deal and the whole creative control, which I know a lot of bands signed and tried to get. But Michael Parisi and Warner just seemed to be serious. You know, I, I think the whole FSO single was um, almost an experiment in how far can we push this? Are they really serious? And you know, they seem to love it. And I think from that point forward, it was like, actually, you know, you know, perhaps the others have a have a different um, perception of that moment. But for me, uh, it felt like, yeah, they're serious. We can do whatever the fuck we want here.
1: Two playing would end up a diverse and eclectic listen touching upon a number of willfully different and divergent styles. And Kwan reckons this is
5: as much to do with youthful naivete as it was their
1: broad music tastes.
5: I mean, it also comes back to the, the fact that we're really punk rockers at heart. So we're kind of, we're just like, whatever goes, goes. We'll do a bad job at it. Bad, I think if you do a, a bad job of it, but you do it with heart and that's that song has heart, then you can still, you can still feel it and you can still hear it. And it's got a, an eclectic sound for its time but uh, it still works. I think the problem with our later stuff is that it, you, you kind of become tainted with success and you start overthinking things and overdoing things and you get paralysed and, you you know, it's all those sort of things that come with it that you know, many people have experienced and we certainly experience that as well.
1: And as for opening your major label debut album with a song called I Sucked A Lot Of Cock To Get Where I Am, why not?
5: I always love that tongue-in-cheek stuff and uh, – they the record company did try and make us change the the title to rinsing or something ridiculous. I don't know what it was, but yeah, I remember going no no, it's got to be that otherwise I'm not putting it out. And they were you know I think they had a hard time with this to a, to a degree degree because they you know we weren't and when you're selling records they let you do what you want. As soon as you just stop selling them, they start you know pissing on you and pushing around. That's just that's just you know business. But um, at the time we were riding high because we were coming up in popularity and they saw an opportunity to make money and they let us get away with stuff that we wouldn't... And, I mean, you know, kudos to, to Michael for pushing and and allowing us to do that. I think it was a smart move on their part for sure. The song we were just discussing, I Sucked a Lot of Cock
1: to Get Where I Am, is a catchy and hilarious song in any context, hence Sub Pop releasing it as a standalone 7-inch single in 96, as did UK's Coalition recordings a couple of years later. But on 2 playing... Presented as track one on their major label debut, it's a stroke of absolute genius. Ben remembers the song coming together in the studio along with another of Kwan's memorable tune-playing contributions.
3: But it was funny. I mean, like even in the studio in Thailand when we did that, we recorded that song and, um, you know, Kwan did, we did the bass and the guitar and the drums and and Kwan did the vocal and then I think it was Magoo or someone or Kwan like, oh, we should do a harmony. We're like, oh, we've never done harmonies. Like we've never even done – like how do you do a harmony? <laughs> or maybe on Blubber Boy there was one, but I remember Kwan just going – like doing one and just going, oh, my God, that sounds so pop. And then it's like do another one. And he did another one and another one another. He just kept stacking it and then just going – Wow, it's like, it's always like the Beach Boys or something. You know, we just, we just, uh, yeah, it's quite, I remember that that moment being quite surprising. And he, Kwan's a pretty eccentric dude. He, he was, there was a little vocal boost to the side in the control room in the studio. And Quan would, you know, he, he likes to really focus when he's writing his lyrics. And he would go in this, it was a glass door, and he would sit cross legged on the ground the exercise book open on his on his knees writing the words and he would be in there for like hours I remember especially writing music is sport and stuff just just in his brain just punching out the lyrics yeah that's right we also did that um I've still got the book I found it the other day it's funny because I was going through my books and um it's this Thai exercise book like a kid's from Thailand a kid's primary school sketchbook on A3 paper. And you know how you, you, you draw the head, and you fold over the paper, you draw the head and then you fold over the paper and you see the body and then... Exquisite corpse. Yeah, so Quan and I filled up this book full of all these bizarro drawings and I found it. I still got it. I was going to bring it around and show you because we did it in the studio while
1: Magoo was mixing or something like that. Music is sport, the song that Ben just remembered Quan writing is another classic regurgitated anti-corporate treatise, this time rallying against the competitive nature of the music industry and how it continually seems to place commerce ahead of art. There's one verse towards the end that must have really taken people up their record label back, assuming they were listening, and it goes, Trying to get those shiny plucked trophies for the office wall, pumping out the hits to feed the media blitz, now watch the swollen champs blow the champers on bikini clad tits.
6: What the hell we here for? Like score, trying to get those shiny trophies
1: for his part, reckons that lyrics like that were fair game, given their contractual creative control.
5: I mean I don't I don't think we ever felt fettered by the record company at that point. Um and it really was a very equitable kind of agreement. A lot of the stuff was non recuperable All the video stuff was non recuperable which is just unheard of now. And I think some of the records were half recuperable or something. So we didn't even have to pay it all back, which was incredible for the time. And I remember that, you know, Janet and I would just buy computers with the video money. <laughs> like you'd get like 15 grand and then you can make a shitty video, but learn how to use the the rudimentary 3D motion graphics programs and stuff, which was great. You know, it's a great way to, it was a really free way of working and we're, we're really, really lucky to be, to have that opportunity to muck around with stuff.
1: For Magoo in the producer's chair, the band's love of pushing boundaries really served to fast track his already steep learning curve.
4: Well, you know, like, I, I guess my part was just with the music and the production and we were, like, like I would try and push each song into its various genre as far as I possibly could as, you know, with the limited skill that I had at the time. Um But the band were, you know, at every possible moment trying to push the envelope and it was fantastic to be part of. And, and you know, like I've got to say, I really grew as a producer working with the band because the band were- Um, We did develop a really good relationship together, a very trusting relationship. Um, And I I think I came into the studio with an attitude of experimenting, creating what the band want to create. So there was a lot of rule breaking going on in the studio. Like, you know, as much as I... there To learn the craft of production back in the early 90s when I started there wasn't a lot of avenues to learn. And in Brisbane, there wasn't a lot of... The the traditional approach of learning production is to be an apprentice and watch someone work, which in Brisbane, there was no one else to really watch work. I hung out with Jeff Lovejoy a bit, but really he only knew a little bit more than I did. Uh, So, we just didn't have that approach of watching some famous producer work and kind of silently sit in the corner and, and soak it up. Uh, So, really, we had to just experiment ourselves. And the band, like when we were making those EPs, they just kept pushing me. They're just going, hey, Magoo, can we get more of that? We want more distortion. We want more. And I I just kept going, yeah, okay, I'll find more. uh, You know, I would use it as a creative opportunity to go, okay, those guitars are about as dirty as I can possibly make them. How can we make them dirtier? Uh, And I would try and find a way to appease them. Um, and, you know, I've got to really thank them for that because they really did uh, help push me as a producer and just see how far you could push things. And I've always wanted to push things as, as a producer and I think that hunger came from working with Regurgitator and then pushing me. Is it a challenge when a band flits between genres as much
1: as they were doing at the time? Like instead of having your one hat on, you've got to reach out into different fields constantly?
4: I, I, I guess it is, yes, very much so. And I think I changed my approach to recording through working with Regurgitator, like in just trying to find the best way that worked. Um, so, you know, like in the limited opportunities that I was taught, you were sort of generally shown, okay, if you're going to record an album, you'll sit down and record the drums and the bass, maybe a guitar track to the whole album. You'll try and get all the drums done because it's a big setup. You're going to you're put 10, 15 mics around the studio for, for such a recording. You'll try and do that in a concentrated maybe three or four days for an album. And and then you might go and overdub on top of that, you'll add more guitars and you might go through and add all those guitars in one session. And then you might add keyboards and you do that all in one session. And then you might add vocals and you do it all together. And I would call that approach the sort of sausage factory approach. It is very a factory styled approach to recording. And as much as we probably did do that on two playing, um, I started to change by the time we got to unit and approach things song by song. But when it when we were doing two playing, um we set up at center stage, I think maybe Social Disaster was the first song we tried to record. And it was it was kind of a nightmare. It was I remember that song was was the dog on the album. It took ages to get right. And I, I love how it sounds now, so it's by no means a, a dog. But at the time, it felt like the nemesis on my back. Um, uh, you know, I would I would make a concerted effort to go through and create an individual drum sound, band sound, bass sound, guitar sound, just overall band sound for each song. So, I would spend quite a long time between each song setting up and and tuning the sound. And I think another thing with Regurgitator's approach is they tended to not like having the songs too worked out. If they went into the studio and there was like, the song goes like this, they just wouldn't, they just would get bored really quickly. But if they didn't know how the song went, they would play it over and over again and they would be working out how the song went. So while they were working out how the song was going to go, they were arranging it and maybe even writing parts in the studio... I would be like a rabbit, you know, I'd have stopped, I'd run into the studio like a live sound guy, which is the world I came from, and I'd be moving mics and tweaking things, changing microphones, you know, and, and going, oh, I'm going to use a different guitar amp for this and just plug in a different guitar amp while they're not looking, while they're talking about arrangements. I would do things like that because I was trying to get a particular outcome, you know, so social disaster, I guess, we were trying to get that rock hip hop thing happening. I was trying to make it dirty. I didn't quite know how to do it. And I was just trying whatever. And I would go through and adjust things while they were uh, working out how the song went. Um, so that was a unique approach, I guess. Um and maybe not kind of standard, but I I eventually worked out that it was easier to actually just record the basic band track, the drums and bass, maybe guitar, um, and then finish the song before you start another song. Um, But that's how we approached uh, two playing and and it kind of was how it worked. um, I I guess I think I eventually got sick of, like after I've set up for one song, say like Social Disaster, I would have put the mics in all these crazy positions And then if we're going to record, I sucked a lot of cock after that. um, It would have been like, oh, almost like a complete set up again. But I I was kind of into, you know, making things hard for myself. Kwan agrees
1: that both Regurgitator and Magoo were learning on the fly during the two playing sessions. And then in some ways, this combined inexperience ended up having positive outcomes.
5: I think we all kind of felt, like you said before, we were all kind of finding our feet with what we were doing and he was definitely at the same kind of critical moment in his career and his skill set. So I don't think anyone felt like, I think there was a level of, of um, equality across the whole band, including him as a producer because we were all like, he was very good at um, uh, um, just being uh, the The mediator between us all to make sure that no fights would erupt or everyone was being like genuine and and saying their piece in a in a <laughs> a nice way and a polite way and yeah he was very good at, at adjudicating the the conversations we would have about um, writing music together and and he would also take a lot of risks that I mean I think a more seasoned producer wouldn't have done. He loved distortion we were like, yep, just put as much as you'd like on it it sounds it sounds fucked up let's do it." So he would always, you know, he, he was very um, enabling in that regard because of, of, of his lack of experience, if you like, and our lack of experience. We kind of came together at a similar, in a similar way and arrived at the, the finished product um, in that way too. So there was That's a journey that was similar between us all, I think. It's probably not
1: always going to be plain sailing like this, trying to navigate such edgy product through the major label machinations. And for a Regurgitator, having someone like Michael on the same page as them from the inside, no doubt played a sizable role in their success.
0: I kind of shielded those boys from from the label, so to speak. Um, and the label were were pretty good to us because they didn't, you know, they didn't send in my, in my way in the end. You know, they let us do what we wanted to do in the end. Because as far as Brian Harris was concerned, as long as it fucking sold, this is his favourite line. as Long as it fucking sells, I'm happy. And he he'd say to me. I said, to, I said to Brian once, "What kind of music do you, do you like?" Brian and he goes, "Anything that fucking sells." <laughs> so, so because they were successful and the unit was, you know, our, our two playing was doing really well, they didn't get in our way, you know, and 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 was the irony lost on on most some of those executives? Absolutely, definitely lost on them. But again, I shielded them from from all that kind of stuff, and 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 the label in general, the marketing team, the, you know, the promo and sales team, the kids in the company loved it because it was so, you know in your face. And so anti-establishment, you know, the oldest executives didn't quite get it, but they're not meant to get it. They weren't meant to get it at all.
1: It's an eclectic listen. I mean, the songs are all so different. Was that, did that present any challenges from your end? Uh,
0: I think, I think the whole, you know, reason or the, you know, the reason for their existence, they regurgitate their, you know, music, you know, their influences. And so I knew you were going to get a really varied record and and it didn't matter, you know, didn't matter because I, I, it's it, yes a it genre hopped, but then that's, that's, that was the exciting thing about it—the fact that it could go from you know, you know, prodigy style you know techno to you know, suck a lot of cock to get where I am. You know, it sounds like an indie 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 rock song. You know, and I, I love the fact that, that they that genre hopped. It was it was, um, it was it was part of their charm, wasn't it? Really, not part. It was a lot of their charm. You know how many how many acts can can do that? Can John Rock like that and get away with it? You know, and and I think they did. They owned it. Now, majors at the time. I mean, you gotta remember they they, you know, up until I got to well, Warner's in the in the mid '90s, they were still selling the Eagles and selling. You know, like they weren't even releasing a lot of the stuff that they had. You know, locally, they, they you have to buy if you want a Dr Dre or Snoop Dogg or or Marilyn Manson. You have to get it on import. It wasn't until I got there you know, in the mid 90s where I would convince them to put out the records locally, you know, they had this great label called Interscope sitting in, you know, and they weren't doing anything with it. So I just said, you've got to put this music out because kids, kids want it. You know, the, the, the days of, you know, importing those kinds of records were over, you know, the alternative scene was exploding globally. And, and you're right, it was like that post Nirvana period, but it really blew up. And there was a lot of labels were sending a lot of great music, particularly in America you know, and, and the UK for that matter. And Australian labels were just a bit behind the eight ball at that times, you know, putting out, you know, that kind of music, you know, locally. But then, you know, then you know, triple you can and then triple J, you know, triple J and and, and the the advent of, of festivals like Big Day Out, you know, it just created this whole, you know, fantastic scene, you know. It was um and it was it was exciting because there was all kinds of bands from all, all over the country doing really cool things.
1: Back over in Thailand the tracking aspect of the two playing sessions is finished and Magoo is squirrelled away in the studio doing the mixing. So in the ensuing downtime, the band shoots some footage to make a region-appropriate film clip for Kung Fu Sing, even though that had been recorded in Brisbane, which as well as all the shots capturing the hustle and bustle of Bangkok street life, featured some hilarious footage of the band living out their B-movie fantasies. Here's Ben. We shot that Kung Fu
3: Sing video in Thailand while we were there, close to the end of the session and uh, I think the record company found some local film crew that had experience with kind of B-grade martial art films and they yeah, they put the video together. And the first day, we shot it in two days, the first day we were walking around town shooting kind of incidental stuff and then the second day, at the end of the first day, I think we went out for dinner or something and he says, ah, tomorrow I have a surprise for you. And we're like, what is it? And he goes, I cannot tell you. And then we see him the next morning and he's say, like, hey, man, we go, hey, what's your surprise? And he goes, today you will fly. And he had like this, you know, old school martial art rig set set up in the forest between trees and had us in there. It was pretty
1: ridiculous. Martin also remembers shooting the Kung Fu scene clip being a lot of fun, although it did come with some drawbacks.
2: Absolutely, my friend. It was great fun except for that harness thing that was like just ripping our balls to pieces (laughs) I remember that I remember a whole bunch of Thai dudes sitting around because we're going back 25 years things weren't as uh, as modernised as what they are now in Thailand and uh, just Thai dudes man out in the jungle stoned off their fucking tits man, (laughs) swinging us around on these harnesses and and, um, yeah it it was crazy man (laughs) <laughs> some dude following us around. We're just like, yeah, there's some stairs. There's some stairs. Sit on the stairs and take a picture, man. <laughs> there's a phone There's a phone box pretending you're singing the song. It was just, it, it, it was gorilla type shit, man. It was just like, whatever. <laughs> but the film could have turned out. It still, still looks good, but I still think that Kung Fu Sing production-wise, which we didn't actually do in Thailand. We did it in Brisbane. Um, is one of the best... Because I remember when we did it originally, it was too clean. It was just like this. It was clean. It was fucking rubbish. And I said to McGoo, just fucking overcompress the drums, man. Just like do everything that that you're not meant to do and bingo. And then we just like redlined it. Like (laughs) everything you're not meant to do, we did to that recording and it sounds fucking fantastic.
1: Kwan remembers that filming the Kung Fu Sing clip, while fun, wasn't the only adventure that the band got up to once they'd
5: fulfilled their recording obligation oh yeah man that that crew was insane and the that the way they had that that crane that didn't work at all it was just the cranes so i had like five guys pushing it around through the jungle and these really painful like straps like flying straps that would cut into your thighs and stuff was great yeah totally <laughs> insane and i mean it's, it's when you take risks like that, you really come out with something that's really unusual and really like, well, how did that happen, you know? You ask afterwards, but at the time, it seemed like a natural thing to do. And I remember doing a show in the middle of this, this kind of like semi-popular pop band called The Barbies over in Thailand. They asked, I mean, somehow someone organized us to play in the middle of one of their sets. So we got up in this nightclub in the middle of Bangkok, I think it was. And it had like, uh, it was like a, just a, like a huge kind of transformers type club just a dance club and they were playing and then we got up and did three songs in the middle of their set they're like a metal band metal pop band and so we played all this really kind of 80s metal gear typical of that Asian kind of quality kind of stuff. And and then we got off and they start, and they just went on. They took off afterwards. And then the this mothership came down that looked like a a really cheap version of the Parliament funkadelic kind of mothership and the DJ was in it and and that just turned into a dance party after it was so surreal. And then if you don't take risks and go to places that are off the beaten path, you never really have these experiences. And I mean Paul. Paul is just known for booking us these very strange shows. And we're always just like, yeah, okay. We haven't done that before. We haven't played in a Russian-built circus tent in the middle of Laos before. Let's do that. So, I mean, this is this is part of the attitude of the band. We've never really been about like finding the quickest way to the most secure financial future for us or, you know, you know piling up the cash. It's always been about, well, what's the most interesting experience we can have as an artistic unit and just going for it.
1: it seems like you're having a lot of fun in those early days.
5: Yeah, it was fun. I mean, there was a lot of internal conflicts with personalities, but it made it the most creative period. I think if you don't have that internal conflict or competitiveness between the major players in, in inside the band, then you rarely get your, your best stuff. Um, and I think after Martin left, uh, we definitely got a lot more complacent and it was just more like a family. And I mean, it's great when I see these guys again, they'd like a family to me. And when we tour, it's easy. There's no fighting. It's very, but you know we don't make great music anymore. It's, you know, it's not that the way it was for sure. Make some pretty great music. Oh, that's very nice of you. <laughs> I mean, I, I do feel like unit was probably the pinnacle for me and, and some are too playing as well in terms of a songwriter because I felt the most free and I felt the most, like I didn't give a fuck. And I think that's a really important space to be in when you're a creative person. When you, like I said, when you do get affected by success and, you know, winning awards and all that kind of crap. And you think about, you start double, double I mean, second guessing yourself constantly and it makes it harder for you to just be yourself and say the things you want to say. And when you're younger, you have fewer things to worry about. When you, you know, We've all got kids now, you know, you start thinking in different lines and, and priorities are changed and all that sort of thing. So it becomes harder. Unit
1: that Quan just mentioned is regurgitated as 1997 follow-up, but that's a story for another time. Magoo, in the meantime, is still heavily ensconced in mixing to playing.
4: From memory, I I think we spent 11 days recording and I had about 10 days mixing. Um, I think we only recorded, uh, well, Kung Fu Sing was already done and FSO was already done. So yeah, there's 12 songs there, but Um, Some of them were quite simple. I think I I mixed maybe three or four songs, uh, enough for the band to feel like, oh, Magoo's got this covered. And then they they went off and made the the Kung Fu Sing film clip, which was quite an ordeal. I think they spent a good sort of three or four days making it. Uh, I I can't remember. And then Michael Parisi had flown out and there, there was interviews happening as well at the same time, like Juice and Rolling Stone magazine flew to the studio and were interviewing the band. Um, so I had all this time to kind of do it myself and basically the band would go off and do whatever they had to do record company type chores marketing and stuff like that and then then they would come into the studio and go oh what did Magoo get up to today and I'd just play them a, a mix you know oh what do you think and in in general I, I don't remember the mixing as being arduous or uh, anything like that it would was kind of worked quite well for me this this studio control room sounded really good which made it easy to mix in um apart from the toothpicks it it kind of went pretty well so there we have it regurgitator
1: have hit the back blocks of bangkok conquered the many hurdles they faced barbaric living conditions sickness weed toting locals plus all of the usual pressures which are part and parcel of a young band recording their debut album and they're ready to head back to australia proudly clutching the fruit of their labours to playing. But is Australia ready for this confident and cocksure piece of subversive art? Will Warner understand the humour behind I sucked a lot of cock to get where I am? How are conservative commentators like Alan Jones going to respond to the arch concepts and language of tracks like G7, Dick, Electro Boogie and Social Disaster? Martin reckons that he and the band couldn't wait to see how it would be received.
2: Yeah, I really like the subversive stuff. The other guys will tell you that too. I never tried to make it, and no one ever did. None of us ever wanted to be pop stars. We never really compromised at all. I don't. Know. But at the same time, I don't think we really went. We purposely went against it either. We weren't that Nirvana anti-rock star. You know, we don't want to be seen like this. We played up to it because I think even on the first EP. We used the Warner Brothers logo, which we had to remove. We, we played into it. It was like, fuck, we've done it. Why not just, just accept it for what it is? You know what I mean? But we weren't, we weren't going we to sell ourselves out for, you know, sell a couple of records in Sydney or Melbourne or whatever. But, um, I think well, we were just there for the ride, to be honest.
1: Make sure you join us for the third episode of Rewind's look at Regurgitator's debut album 2 playing where we'll find out how our intrepid musical explorers and their album fare once they're back in the first world. We'll end episode two with one of two playing singles that we haven't really touched upon yet, Miffy's Simplicity, a love song from Kwan to his partner Janet, and one of two playing's most fun yet sincere moments.
6: I sit and wait until I'm so excited that I tingle inside she picks me up in that long white car We go a Kevin and we count all the stars She drives a cami and it's wide for sound A so sweetie when she puts up or down Out to the country where the air is fresh Just to be with her is the what I like best I see her pale skin shine in the sun She's got a 15 plus sunbucker on I can't tell you that our love will be strong After the boys of no time gone She's not here, I don't know how I survive I hurt myself cause I forget I'm alive We run and hide from all the other boys And sit in parks with educational toys We sit and sit hot water and milk And talk about how all the blood got spilt We like to lie in bed and watch the TV And gasp in all need miffy simplicity And when the rest is all said and done I feel so good cause she's my geek love We're always bad and i running away
1: Good on you for making it this far. Please check out episode three and do all the usual rate and review stuff. We'll catch you soon.
0: Rewind with Steve Bell is a podcast from the Handshake Agency Network. Produced by Craig Traweek and Andrew Musk. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker. Theme music by Dollar